1: This
2: is Arscast Extra.
3: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, um, I just sort of want to insert a, a sound effect of mild disappointment. Not mild disappointment, considerable disappointment in here. I don't
2: know what that is, though.
3: Is it just like... You
2: know, yeah, a something. heavy sigh. A heavy sigh. <sighs> There you go, beautifully done. Thank you. I think that's about right. Uh, I think that's the sort of the collective mood, as far as I can tell. Uh, just fed up, really.
1: Mm.
2: Badly morning. It's a badly morning.
3: It is a very badly morning. That was that was really poor last night. That was really. I mean, we're going to talk about, it. I'm sure, the wider issues and and everything else that uh, that's going on. Um, but I suppose we should
2: talk about the match. Mm. You know. Imagine someone who only saw the first half. They'd be staggered, wouldn't they, by what happened by 90 minutes? Do you, do you think they would be staggered, though, really?
3: If they knew Arsenal, do you think they would Maybe be staggered not. because it felt a little bit like we should have taken more advantage of the i mean i'm not going to call it domination really because it wasn't necessarily dominance in the sense that we were creating lots of chances but we did seem to be more on top
2: um the first they were. Hour. yeah yeah uh I mean, let's go right back to the beginning. OK. Was the team as you expected it to be? Oh, I thought you meant the beginning of time, which was... <laughs> pre-football. Yeah. Let's go back pre-football. <laughs> pre-football.
3: Um, the team was as I expected, and... Um, I'm gonna be Captain hindsight, and I know we talked about this in the preview a little bit, but uh I you know, given the way the game played out, I'm sorry he didn't go with the four Diamond two formation, I have to say, but I can understand why he
2: why he went the way that he did, yeah, I mean, I was a proponent of the four Diamond two as well, um I felt like we had a lot of success with that system against. Chelsea in the league, mm. uh, the Emirates. I know we didn't have Aaron Ramsey, but I felt we could have sort of emulated that role a little bit. But, you know, in the first 45 minutes, I wasn't thinking, well, the formation is a huge issue here. You know, I, I think no. we were we were kind of making a, a decent fist of it. And we looked actually with the wingbacks to have played maybe quite a smart tactical move. I mean, they were getting in and they were threatening, I thought.
3: They were in threatening positions. I'm not sure their delivery was particularly threatening. Yes, I think
2: that's completely correct. Yeah,
3: yeah. But it did know. it did feel like one of those games where we play this formation where unless somebody and by somebody I generally mean either Kalasinac with a cross or our two strikers taking it upon themselves to to fashion chances for each other. It's one of those systems that just chugs along. And doesn't really inspire you in any way, and the football isn't particularly, it isn't particularly effective. It's not, it's not bad per se, but it's not. I don't think it. It it's difficult to deal with from an opposition point of view, and that's kind of where I felt we were at the end of that first half, where we'd had a reasonable amount of possession, but didn't do a great deal with it, and I think that was a slight concern to me. Um, somebody at halftime, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I didn't really watch the, the the punditry or the analysis or anything like that, but it was somebody saying, well, I'm not sure Chelsea can be as bad again in the second half as they were in the first half, and I immediately thought, uh-oh, that's a really good point. Mm. And so it proved, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they weren't great in the first half. They only really threatened. I'm trying to think check uh, made a decent save, didn't he? From yeah, Giroud. there was Giroud. It opened up a bit for them towards the end of the towards the end of the first half. But from our point of view, I mean, I, I keep thinking of that time where Kalasnatch sort of got in from a Shaka pass on the mm. left hand side of the box, and he, he chose to take a touch when I think really could have just tried to square it first time, and Aubameyang and Lacazette were sort of wasting on the six yard line. Yeah, um, that's the one that keeps coming back to me. There was that Aubameyang volley as well, which kind of went wide and Ozil might have been able to throw himself at it. I don't know. I mean, it was a sort of half chance. He
3: was sort of caught on his heels a bit, Ozil. I don't think he expected the ball to come near him, which uh, I guess is, well, I don't know whether that's okay or whether it's not okay. but it's not really the, you know, he's not a poacher, you know. Um, It's the kind of chance that you would like to fall to Aubameyang rather than from Aubameyang. Yes,
2: that's for sure. Mm. That's for sure. I mean, I do find a, uh, something a bit paradoxical about this formation, I have to say, because I, while I agree with you that it's so dependent on the wing-backs providing overlaps, and actually I th- did think in the first half that Maitland-Niles had a pretty good half, and I thought the way mm-hmm. he was combining with Lacazette on the right-hand side was promising. You know, There were some indications of a bit of a partnership there, because Lacazette was pulling wide and Maitland-Niles... Uh, combining with him. But I, I do find it odd that we just seem to create absolutely nothing centrally because I do feel like in Shaka and Torreira, we have players who can pass from deep. Uh, in theory, in Meza Erzl, we have someone who can connect that midfield to that attack. So, you know, when I look at it structurally, I don't understand, and maybe I'm being foolish, but I don't understand why it's so contingent on the wing-backs and we're not able to produce anything in central areas. Well, I guess it's just the instruction, isn't it? The instruction is to get it wide and get it to the wing-backs and put the balls
3: in, so... I think when we get the ball in central areas, we're looking to move it wide rather than looking to to try and progress the ball uh, vertically through the middle of the pitch. So um, I, I just feel like you know it's sort of weighed on them that this is what they have to do and that's how they have to do it. So, mm,
2: well, I um, mean, yeah, that's that's possibly true. I mean, the other thing is that I thought Chelsea, you know, they saw we started two strikers and they played a really narrow back four and essentially. Our strikers were never really in the game. I mean, I can't really think of anything someone like Aubameyang did in this season. Yeah, merger. look,
3: I mean, I've seen them take, you know, a, a fair amount of stick this morning uh, for being poor. And I think they were poor. There's no getting away from that. But I'm much more inclined to give a pass to two players who have made this season semi-respectable with their goals and their assists. um, you know, together they've they've scored, I don't know how many, 50 goals they've scored between them. And there's probably, you know, another 15 assists mm. between them as well. So, um, you know, I, I'm not really inclined to go in hard on them because when we play in a way that doesn't really create chances for strikers it's hard to point the finger at them as as the problem. I think the problem is getting the ball to them in the right areas. And that was that was the issue with the first half. It's been the issue with this formation quite often this season in games where we've struggled to, to make chances for the strikers. You think about the, the, the great performances uh, in the semifinals against Valencia, but that was two guys who basically went, fuck it. We'll do it ourselves because nobody else is doing it for us. And that's not sustainable. It was brilliant against Valencia. But, you know, you can't expect them to haul the team forward. You know, they can't carry or or pull nine players with them, you know. so
2: Maybe not, maybe not. But we did, I mean, we did need them to. I know uh, we needed them to. I I mean, I'm not not saying that
3: um, we didn't need that. I'm just saying that that's wrong. It's the wrong way for your team to be. You can't be so top-ended uh, and expect them to produce on a consistent basis. They did it against Valencia. They couldn't do it against Chelsea, who are a better team, better organized team, better set up, uh, you know, tactically better. Individual quality is a lot better. You know, you can't expect them to be able to produce that. So uh, while we needed them to do it, I think it's wrong to put, the you know, the, or for them to shoulder all the blame.
2: Oh, yeah. I don't mean to say they shoulder all the blame. I just think that, you know, ultimately, I think Chelsea's attacking players delivered in a way that ours didn't. And it's not to say Mm. they're bad players, but, you know, they didn't... If they had done what they did against Valencia, we might have won the final. But, you know, I'm not Mm. saying they can do that every week, but I'm saying that's what this team... Mm. does rely on yes. like without that we, we are really screwed yes if it, when it doesn't happen we're very very blunt yeah it's almost as force. if
3: you might lose a final 4-1 or something if that doesn't happen so <laughs> um,
2: well, look, and there's also you got I mean it's both ends of the pitch I'm not saying it's mm. just the attacking end, but I mean no, they course. weren't they weren't uh, the force that you know we spoke before the game saying we just had a good feeling these strikers would be able to come through for us and f- for whatever reason it didn't play out that way right um
3: the big, I suppose, the big shout from the first half was a potential penalty on Lacazette. I think mm-hmm. we're we're of, of the same mind here. I don't think it was a penalty.
2: No, I, I mean I didn't at any point think it was a penalty because he just sort of goes over, doesn't he? He, he, he sort of dribbles the ball off and, and falls over, and the keeper very deliberately, I think, pulls out of it. So if it was given against you, you'd be absolutely apoplectic. I yeah, suspect.
3: exactly. I mean, people said there is a bit of contact there from from Kepa on Lacazette, like but, you know, I've, I've spoken often about how contact should not equal a penalty or a foul. Just because there's contact doesn't mean it's sufficient to make a guy fall over in the box, you know. So... Mm. I would prefer a sport I would prefer football without penalties for that kind of thing so I'm not going to sit here and say we should have had one it wasn't a penalty anyway Um, I think it was probably um, I mean we're obviously desperate to win the game and uh, you know there was this sort of collective desperation for VAR to come in and somehow overrule the referee's decision uh, which I I was certainly part of at the time because you know you're going oh my god we need anything you know and and particularly when you know you're a team realistically that needs to score first Mm. Um, you know getting that goal early on would have been huge but it wasn't a penalty and I don't think that's anything we can cling to this morning
2: no I I would agree with that Uh, yeah definitely no penalty Mm. So, does that take us pretty much to half time? I think so. It does.
3: It does take us to half time. And.
2: But, you know, at half time, we were very, very much in the game. I mean, I thought we were the better side for the first half hour. There were signs Chelsea were coming back into it. I think half time came at, well, what felt like a decent time for us in that respect because the pattern of the game was slightly shifting. Um,. But I mean, yeah, pretty much everything that followed the the halftime whistle was uh, garbage, disastrous. absolute yeah. garbage. Um,
3: first goal then from from Giroud. Um, I mean, look, he has scored that kind of goal for us. <laughs> I don't know how many times. I don't know uh-huh. how many times he scored that kind of goal. Um, you know, a brilliant header. Uh, he he just can find space in the box and pull off. Uh, exceptional finishes uh, I think Kashalni took a, a sort of a half pause um which was crucial, and he got ahead of him. i mean of all the people who who should know what Giru can do, Kashalni's that guy
2: yeah i mean i I almost half wondered if like was there a bit of an unwillingness to Kick his mate in the head. Do you know what I mean? Because Giroud went in low, and Koscielny went with his foot, and it just felt like he sort of allowed him to get across him way too easily. It was quite out of character, I thought, from Koscielny. Yeah, he should have kicked um, his fucking head off. Well, genuinely, I mean, <laughs> you know, t- I take the take the ball, and and whatever comes with it. But it's almost yeah. like he didn't quite commit in that case. And I also thought, I mean, it's easy to say with hindsight, but you know, Maitland Niles as good as he was in the first half, I thought he had a bit of a Catastrophe in the second half and I think it was Emerson who had the ball 30 yards out and Maitland-Niles was obviously caught in two minds didn't close him down mm. I, I was screaming at my TV for him to close him down
3: Yeah I mean, I'm just watching it again and there's actually somebody makes a run outside him so he's yeah, a yeah, yeah. little bit he's a little bit caught between
2: two stools there I know it, it, so you know if he goes there's a chance that he gets taken out of the game and mm. then they get an overlap but you know, it was a two-on-one situation, so I've got a bit of sympathy with him. But the cross is is decent enough. And what like a, a big Shirli-
3: fucking eejit, Actually, I'm just watching it here. Giroud with his hands in the air, like the not celebrating kind of. Oh, fuck off!
2: Well, it was a really fuck weird off. one because it seemed to me like he celebrated and then remembered he wasn't supposed to in his mind. Do you know what I mean? So he sort of went on his hands and he's put his hands up and then was like, oh, "I'll just shut my eyes and then that'll be a, that'll ba- be all right." I'll bask in the moment here. Yeah, fuck off. I mean, I don't know if you've seen him on the bus, Chelsea bus, celebrating, holding the Europa League trophy and yeah. shouting "Thank you, Arsenal." I mean, it's not a great, uh, not a great look for for Olivier Giroud. Don't but, you know, worry, don't worry. He's next a time, player.
3: next time, Chelsea come to the Emirates, people will sing his song again and give him a, a lovely <laughs> welcome. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be
2: lovely. A guard of honor. Fuck. Um, but yeah, as soon as that goal went in. And I should say, I've seen some people say they think Thought Czech should have saved it. I'm not I'm not convinced Bern Leno saves any of those goals. I mean I know it's impossible to know, but I- I'm not necessarily convinced. Mm,
3: I'm not convinced either. The only thing is he-, he is a little bit slow to get down sometimes to his near post, but yeah. you know, really uh, I-, I don't I don't think Pederchek was our problem last night, to be honest. Um you know, after that, I think Chelsea Um, Chelsea looked immediately more confident and we looked Mm. like we were on the verge of of the crumble. We were on the verge of the crumble and then the crumble began.
2: Yeah, I mean, we looked vulnerable as soon as we conceded and I think I tweeted about it, but there was a risk that we were just over committing in certain areas of the pitch and you cannot do that with players like... Hazard and Pedro who have speed and intelligence and can get in behind you and you know we were really pushing high on the press and in David Luiz and Jorginho they had players who could escape that and every time they broke forward it looked like they might score Um, and as soon as the first goal in it's something I know Tim Stillman spoken about a lot Mm. we don't look like a team who responds well at all to going behind and the tie just felt irreversible from that point I never had any confidence Really that we would get back in the game from the minute we fell behind,
3: no me neither, me neither, which tells you a lot about the team, uh you know, the goal, I think Monreal caught out by the movement of Pedro, we lost the ball in midfield, I think it was Maitland Niles at the time, it looked to me like a foul, but the referee was standing right there uh he didn't see I think, think it was.
2: probably was a foul. Yeah. I've seen it back a couple of times and, and you know I th- I th- again there's a bit of un- mis bit of misfortune for Maitland Niles there but once he's taken out the game the back three sort of shunt across and Koscielny, uh I think goes out to sort of so Krasis goes right out to the right back position and Monreal is sort of left a bit like Maitland Niles with two players really and he makes the wrong choice he doesn't mm. go with Pedro he tucks in field. Pedro's left free and you know it's mm. probably another decent finish but
1: yeah, yeah
3: penalty then. Maitland-Niles foul on Giroud. Definitely penalty, uh, definite it? penalty, of course, and uh, you said it the other day uh, on the preview podcast. Um, if Chelsea get a penalty, it's a goal. And mm-hmm. it was. Um, and at that point, at, at 2-0, uh, just before the penalty was given, uh, Iwobi was waiting on the sidelines. I assume maybe Gendouzi was as well, but I'm not 100% I so. sure. So he was about to change it at 2-0, but at 3-0 it became something of a moot point. Cracking finish from from Iwobi to score um, to score the goal that he did. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about him being a little bit uh, what's the word? Maybe unconvincing in terms of his finishing. He doesn't Tentative. quite put his foot yeah. through the ball uh, the way you might like. But there was no question this time that uh, you know he was doing anything other than smacking it. Just watching it here, I mean, that is a brilliant goal. Um,
2: it's it's, it's a weird thing with Iwobi. I do feel like when he actually puts his foot through the ball. He generally fares quite well, but he always goes for the side foot and makes a hash of it. Mm. I actually thought he was, you know, one of the very few bright spots in the game. As soon as he came on, he played with uh, energy. And it's either one of two things, depending on (laughs) sort of your view of Iwobi. You can say, well, look, the pressure was off at that point, and that's when he Mm. generally does well. Or you can say, an angry Iwobi is a good Iwobi. You know, it feels like when. Things are going against him or the team a little bit It's when you sometimes can see the best of him mm. But yeah, look He came on and made a lot more impact Than most of the players who started So that was some positive But you know, as soon as we scored It felt like we conceded almost immediately Didn't it? Yeah,
3: it was two, two minutes I think um, Wow Hazard and and Giroud and Giroud and Hazard and 4-1 and and that's that. That's that. That's a humiliating scoreline in a in a major final. You know, to lose to a team like Chelsea, you know, not in itself a, a shameful thing, but I think to to go down that badly in a final is is really poor. It could have been worse. Petr Cech did make some saves as well in the final stages of the game. Uh, you know, Chelsea could really have um, have made our lives and the scoreline even more miserable. So uh, that 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 to me as well has been a common theme throughout this season. The it could have been worse.
2: Yes, yes, uh, our keepers have really kept score lines down on more than one occasion Mm. Um, both Czech and Leno have done that throughout Mm. the season so yeah I mean it it could have been worse Uh, I mean it's a it's a it's a big margin to lose by in a a showpiece
3: embarrassing it's an embarrassing scoreline no question no question I mean Uh, you know, I don't have to deal with too many Chelsea fans and I'm sure uh, there are many people listening to this who will have closer proximity to them than me who are probably suffering a little bit more from it. Um, But by any measure, it's a really embarrassing scoreline to lose a final by. Um, We'll talk maybe more about the implications, but there was a substitution at 77 minutes. Joe Willock was brought on in place of Mesut Ozil. I think I said on Twitter, that is the most pointed substitution I've ever seen in my life
2: ever. Yeah. It it felt uh, like a weighty move. There was a lot Mm. attached to that. I mean, I must say when it first happened, I was like, well, this is, this is just making a point. Yeah. Um, But given the way Willock performed, I actually think it it turned out to be slightly more than that. I mean, he genuinely did improve us.
3: Well, yeah, because he was a young guy who's come on in a game where there's no pressure because everyone knows it's fucked. I mean, he he could have scored, in fairness, and he did more. But what would I mean, a lot of people talking about Ozil's um, stroll off the pitch. He's yeah. looking around, he's looking unhappy. Could, I mean, he couldn't walk any slower, really, could he? I mean, uh, do you take any issue with that? Or is that just, you know, a disappointed uh, a disappointed guy? Uh, one of our questions uh, on the show was from Joe Patch, who's at Boring Joe Patch, and he wants to know, is Mesut Ozil still walking off the pitch? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, I do take a bit of issue with it, I have to say. I just think... But, you know, there was a lot going on in that moment. I mean, Meza Ozil saw the board come up and Joe Willock's number for his. And he, I think, understood some of the implications and some of the subtext there. I mean, there's a clip, I don't know if you've seen it, of him sat on the bench saying some very bad words about somebody. Um, yeah, I'm
3: just watching it here. Hang on. I'm just going to see if I can figure out what he's saying. Uh, Fucking put.
2: Yeah, he's not happy.
3: He's not happy.
2: He's I, not yeah. happy. I think he's calling somebody a fucking pussy. I think, right? I
3: don't know, but he's talking to somebody on the bench and he's he's complaining. I mean, that's that, isn't it, from Mesut Ozil at Arsenal? Well, that should well, be
2: that. That should be that. You know, I don't know if it is that. I mean, the, the the weird thing about Ozil is, like, I'm not sure he was dramatically worse than a lot of other outfield no,
3: players. No, I don't think. I don't think so either. But nobody is he's kind of the, the figurehead of the team in a way, you know, he's the star, he's the biggest star and there are expectations of performance and consistency and delivering and turning up and doing it in big games at big moments when you are that kind of a world star. Nobody else has that stature. So that's why there's more focus on him. And I think it's, mm. it's, it's not really a case that people are saying, we lost the final because of Ozil. Clearly, that, that is not the case. But it feels like this was a game in which it was the straw that broke the camel's back for many, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, did you see Cesc Fabregas talking about Ozil after the, the game? I didn't see it, but I read it. I read yeah, it. Yeah, I, I saw it. And I know Ses Fabregas is a very divisive figure among Arsenal fans, but he was basically talking about the fact that, you know, Ozil was a a star at Real Madrid and basically hasn't coped well with taking a step down and having to be the figurehead and the leader of this club
3: I have the quote here I'll read it for you he said I think sometimes you just have it inside or you don't have it when he was at Real Madrid he was surrounded by top top players and one of the best players in the history of the sport in Cristiano Ronaldo I'm not taking anything away from Messi. he played top football there but once you step down a little bit because we can all agree Real Madrid, Barcelona Bayern Munich they're the top three you have to show yourself a little bit more because you don't have the same quality around you the club buys you to be the actual leader around the club I don't think Mesut has that in him to carry I don't train with him every day but I don't think he has it in him to be a leader and it's impossible to argue with that for me but I mean we didn't buy Mesut Ozil to be necessarily a leader in the traditional sense did we he's not the not the guy who's going to rally the troops and give a rousing team talk and and get everybody together get everybody pumped up but what we did buy him for was to be a leader on the pitch in terms of how he plays and how he how he performs his technical ability his quality all those things are supposed to to give the team a kind of identity and little by little by little by little, drip by drip by drip, it's kind of, it's it's evaporated to the point where, you know, we, we just have to move on now as a football club and he has to move on as a football player because it's it's done for him. It's done, it's gone. I mean, you know, maybe with a new manager, maybe, but that's a different question and one we might come to a, a bit later on.
2: I also think with Ozil, there's this sort of, Strange perception, like the laws of time don't apply to him, like because he was brilliant uh, nearly ten years ago. For, uh, you know, when he first went to Real Madrid, there is the kind of perception that he he should still be able to produce at that level. But I just think he's in a steep, steep decline, and obviously the stats bear that out. Uh, and I think his physicality bears that out as well. I feel like he is almost a relic of. Uh, a type of Premier League football and a type of European football that isn't really there anymore. And when I looked at this Arsenal team against this Chelsea team, I thought there were technical deficiencies, but I thought physically we sort of had too many players who just didn't have that intensity about their their game. And I Mm. think he's emblematic emblematic of that.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, we've talked about certain players in this team throughout the season who just aren't, who shouldn't be here next season to be honest Um, because they've had their chances and they haven't demonstrated enough away from home in big games maybe we've seen it at times this season but in other games where the focus has to be absolute we just don't have players with the right kind of character I mean what what did you make of what Petr Cech said before the game and I saw him come in for a little bit of criticism for this but he said when he was at Chelsea the pressure to achieve a good result was enormous so even if you drew a game the dressing room would be like a funeral or a wake or something like that mm. whereas at Arsenal the culture of the club and this is something that we've we've heard more than once that that it's it's nice like there's a there's a there's a sort of idea that if we make things as comfortable as possible for people and 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 have them in this nice environment where everything is perfect that that Mm. somehow will enable them to reach their potential whereas if as we've seen uh, other clubs and not just a, 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 a Chelsea uh, in the example that Czech is giving, you need pressure. You need pressure to to really uh, push yourself and to, to, to achieve results. And I, I think there's a wider discussion to be had here um, and we might come back to it again because it, it ties in with the manager and it ties in with the owner and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, it felt to me like, there was a lot to what Czech said because he's a smart man who chooses his words pretty carefully
2: yeah I agree and I mean I will add that in the next breath he said I he, I think he said something like we actually win I think we we are focused in the big games which obviously wasn't the case really last night in terms of our performance but mm. he was like I think it's you know we slip up when there's less pressure um, but I do find it telling that you know Unai Emery his comments in the week were really interesting where he said you know everywhere I've been in the past there's been this enormous pressure to, to win and to deliver to stay in the job and he's like at Arsenal I feel like I can plan for the longer term and I think that's sort of symbolic, isn't it? That's that's dangerous. I mean, that's yeah. our problem in I, some ways.
3: I, I, yeah, well, okay, here's a comment um, from our, our friend West Antone who said, the El Mundo interview scared me witless. Emery was scared of being sacked at Sevilla and Valencia but says it's different at Arsenal and he's not worried here. That says mm. something terrifying about how much we will tolerate failure and how long we're prepared to coast. So, I mean, where. I can see a, a logic, right, if you've got a plan and a strategy with a coach and you tell him, look, we're going to give you some time to rebuild and to put in place the foundations of your project and to take it forward and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I see that, uh, you know, as a potentially, as a positive thing. But where do we find the balance between that and the pressure that anybody needs, whether it's a player or a manager, to produce results and to deliver on what they've been tasked with delivering because the bottom line of it is is that Emery was brought in to to achieve Champions League football and has failed mm. on two counts one of them really really badly i think the premier league was really bad and I think obviously being battered in a European final by a London rival is also really really bad if you had to ask me which one waits more for me it's the Premier League considering the position we were in so Mm -hmm. where do you stand on that where do you uh, stand on the the idea of a coach being given some kind of reassurance and knowledge that not everything is contingent on you know this result or that result versus the the ruthlessness, perhaps, that you need to ensure that people um, perform on a consistent basis.
2: Well, I mean, you know, you can look at Chelsea. I think it's something like 13 trophies and 11 managers, uh, you know, over the last <laughs> decade or so. Um, and Sarri probably going to be out there this summer despite securing third place and reaching two finals and winning a trophy. Uh, which tells you you know, that that's kind of the other end of the spectrum in terms mm. of their approach. I'm not necessarily saying that's necessarily the right way to go. Uh, in some f- sort of fairness to Emery, I think he has spoken about trying to um, develop some kind of abrasion in the camp. I, I'm sure he went on record about that, about talking about you know, the need to create tension to facilitate success. Yeah,
3: he did say, didn't he, that he wants defeats to hurt more. And he talked about changing the culture and, and everything else. Um, and you can see how it's difficult to change that culture where, when there are certain players in the squad who, you know, it's not necessarily do or die for them, you know, uh, whether, whether that's to do with their wage packet or, or the stage of their career that they're at, you know?
2: Yeah. Or just having become part of a culture that has permeated the club, I think, you know, over the last five years or so, um, so I, I I have a bit of sympathy with him there in terms of what he's facing. I do worry about the idea that, you know, I said it, I think, a few weeks ago, the idea that him and Raul might have a, a cosy relationship concerns me. You know, I hope when Edu comes in, you know, Raul spoke about him being the guy who safeguards the technical identity of the club and, you know, the philosophy. I really hope that's true and that Edu has a kind of autonomy and an authority above the coach, because I think the last thing we want to get into is a situation where the coach feels like his job is completely safe, almost irrespective of how things play out on the field. Because frankly, that's kind of what we had under the last manager, and what helped create the situation we're in.
3: Mm. I mean, the the other thing maybe about a technical director is you know he he has got to implement, as Raul said, the medium to long term vision for the club in terms of how we play. So you know that could certainly put him at odds with with uh, you know Emery or any other manager. So if Edu comes in and says, you know what, we need to play like the Invincibles played, for example. You know we mm-hmm. need to play high intensity, uh, pacey football with big, strong, quick, athletic players. And Emery's a bit more. Well, you know I want to do a bit of this, a bit of that. I want to be the chameleon team. You know where where then does the does the breakdown? become a problem at that level
2: yeah but you know all you need is a situation where if it is a problem change happens that's the thing I think that's the only thing we can ask for and expect we just don't want to be trapped into another cycle of stasis and and in fact one of the reasons I sort of think Emery if not the right guy is a guy who could work in this setup is because I, I just feel like his chameleonic nature kind of means that he will sort of do what he's told with what Edu gives him. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm now fully putting my hopes into Edu being some sort of genius who can revitalise this football club. But, you know, when Raul said, yeah, he sits there and says, Edu is responsible for the mid- to long-term, you know, plan for the team. I'm like, you know, all I was thinking was, well, you're his boss. Like, what's your position? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and, and that's, that's the, you know, the big thing. I mean, and what does Raoul's boss think?
3: Uh, well, who, Raoul's boss being Stan or Josh Cronky? Yeah. What do they think? They don't give a fuck. I mean, Stan Kroenke was not even at the game. The biggest game that this football club has played in 13 years, and he wasn't there. Josh was there, but, like, you know, who the fuck is Josh, Really? why what 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 is it about josh that makes us think he's anything other than just a younger stan we never hear from him we never get any sense of what he wants or what they want from the club beyond the you know the boring Uh, corporate platitudes of how we've got, you know, tremendous ambition and we want to win this and we want to bring the good times back and we're, you know, committed to this, that and the other. It's absolute nonsense. It's, you know, it's just absolute bollocks. It's like standing on a podium and saying, you know, I want to end crime and solve cancer and, you know, world hunger. And end the nuclear race and, you know, uh, end all discrimination and racism. I want to do all those things. And the minute somebody says how, you're fucked. So Mm. the question is for the Cronkies, how? How do you want to achieve all these things? they know they don't have to answer that question so it's just easy for them to say it or to you know to spout the PR stuff through Raul and Vinay who can sit there in a nice video and and talk about it and say the right things we've heard it all we've heard it all before we heard it from that big baldy bollocks gazetis. And he said all the stuff that people, you know, you, you couldn't really argue with what he said or how he said it, but there was no substance to it. There was never, never, never any substance to it. And that's where we are right now. And I know we've got a big summer and I know everything else. And, you know, it's the first summer of KSE 100% ownership. It's the first summer for Sanyehi. It's the first summer for Vinai. So, you know, I'm I'm holding fire a bit, but it, it feels like the same old shite. Mm.
2: Yeah, and I think whew, winning this trophy, and I, I, listen, the trophy is one thing, and <clears throat> all, all, all the last over the last few months I've been kind of asking myself, why do I sort of care more about the Champions League qualification than I do the possibility of a trophy? And I think I've realised, now that we don't have it, it's that it was sort of an opportunity to kind of reboot the club. You know, I felt like if we could just get into the Champions League and just get that money Mm. and just sort of have that status again, it would give us a chance of doing this rebuild with a bit of support and a bit of a platform. Uh, Yeah. Now it just feels like...
3: mm. I've got a question for you on this, actually, because okay, I I absolutely see what you were saying, and I think that was, uh, you know... uh, um, Maybe idealistic is not the right word to use, but the idea that, you know, Champions League qualification would give us the chance to do mm. a proper rebuild. Mm. Like, I don't Naive, think maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> I, I don't think that the people at the football club, I, I, I can't imagine that Raul Senyahi uh, and even Emery himself are unaware that there are significant problems and issues to address. Right. Mm hmm we do need to rebuild. We need to call time on certain players. We need to be ruthless in the decisions that we make and we might talk in in a bit about how, how we might do those things. But I watched your um, post-match video, your on-the-whistle video, mm. and you said Emery always felt like a short-term hire to get us back into the Champions League. Mm. He didn't. Mm. And now I'm wondering... If that was the approach for this season, can we apply it to next season or do we need to go in a different direction? Like, is that not the wrong approach to try and muddle through another season where this ambition to get back into the Champions League will somehow wipe the slate clean and we go, uh, you know, back towards the top? all hugging and laughing and having a jolly good time because all it took was for us to get back into the Champions League to put everything right. So my question is, is is this approach something we need to address? And if it is, do we need to consider going in a different direction from a managerial point of view? That if if this was what you asked Emery to do and he didn't do it and couldn't do it, and we now accept that we've got a a much bigger job to do this summer because there's so much going on, is it not maybe the time to think about a different approach, a more holistic approach, a more um, slightly longer-term approach? Let's take a step backwards to take two steps forwards. Do you see Emery as the guy to do that? rather than being the guy who's brought in to to kind of apply sticking plasters here and there and try uh, as hard as he might to get the team back into the top 4.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure I do see him as that guy, but I th- I think for me we're still in sticking plaster territory. I mean I mean basically I think Arsenal have a short-term team, a short-term squad. You know, our our best central defender is 33. Our best goal scorer is over 30. Our highest earner and key playmaker is over 30. Uh, hmm. Mkhitaryan, 30. I mean, it's it's a it was assembled as a win now squad, and I think that as tempting as it is to completely blow that up and just say fuck it, we'll just go with you know kids and whatever, and if it takes five years, it takes five years. I still think we're in a window where we could just about sort of fluke our way back into the Champions League and I think I think I would roll the dice uh, with what we've got mm. and with some improvements for one more year before I was like it's over we're a Europa League team we need to start again from the bottom but it's, it's one more year I'm not like give Emery a new deal he's here for five years I just always thought when he arrived two years to get back into the Champions League that's what he's got and I, I I would stick with it. I would stick with it, I think, on balance. But, you know, it's not something I'm doing thinking, this is going to be brilliant. He's going to completely transform the football mm. club. I don't think that. Sure. What do you think?
3: I'm I'm sort of of the opinion that, you know, and I, I said this a little while ago, that, that he's not quite the right man in terms of, of this football club, um, mm. which isn't to say I, I dislike him. Uh, I think he's he tries hard, he works hard. Uh, I feel like circumstances. I was I was actually quite impressed with the El Mundo interview in general. Even though that bit about you know being comfortable in his job to rebuild yeah. was, you know, I thought there was a bit more substance to him. And I thought what he said about changing the culture and um, you know making defeat hurt more. I feel like those are positive things and things that I can really identify with as as what I want from a manager and what I want somebody to try and instill in the squad. I also think as well, we're, we're not necessarily going to be able to get an established manager who is any better than Unai Emery or certainly not a level above him, right? Because of where we are, because of the fact we're in the Europa League, because of the fact we don't really have a a transfer budget to speak of. You know, any manager worth his salt is going to say, fuck off if Arsenal come knocking. What have I got to spend? £40 million? Go fuck yourselves. What does that get me? Half of Kepa. You know, you you might get like... Whatever it is, three eighths of Virgil Van Dyke, or whatever it might be, you know, there's not a lot you can do with that kind of money. Now you could raise some by uh, by selling, and uh, of course we all understand that. But I just think any any manager who's actually at a level above Allegri would have better options, or would look at Arsenal right now and say, "I'm not sure that that's the right place to be." That's not the place for me to be. I'll I'll let that settle down because that's a bit of a fucking minefield. I'll let that settle down before I consider going there. The only only other option you have then is to go young or go with somebody who is um, completely inexperienced, you know. Yeah, Um, like a Michael Arteta, I guess. Like an Arteta, like maybe a Freddie Jumberg, something like that. Mm. That's your only other real option there. Um, So... You know, given those circumstances, I wouldn't be averse to a new manager coming in. I just don't know that we can get anybody who's better than Unai Emery, and that maybe that maybe tells you a lot um, about where we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've got a chameleon manager for a Frankenstein team, and it's you know, it's it doesn't quite work at the moment. This team, there is no real coherent. Identity or, or plan or, you know, methodology there. But I kind of feel like I don't believe we can change enough this summer to suddenly make that work. I sort of think our best bet is still saying, well, let's hope Aubameyang can score enough goals to get us back into the Champions League and just desperately try and make that work.
3: Um, I do think there is a need for a uh, complete culture change, though. You know, we, we talked yeah. about it being nice on the training ground and all that kind of stuff. The, the, there has to be a kind of a culture change at the club in terms of what's acceptable. And, and you know, I, I worry, I, I think this is where I've got worries about Cronky and, and KSE as well. You know, that, that comes from the top. Of course. Yeah. Comes from the top of the club as sort of a, an accountability that goes right through the club. You know, from players, to manager, to board, to executives, to the owner, it's all got to be connected. It has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. So I feel like I'm not sort of questioning the professionalism or the, the desire to win or anything like that of the players or the staff or, 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 or that kind of thing. But I do feel like it seeps down from the very top that when your owner clearly doesn't really give a fuck – it has to have some kind of effect on things overall, right? Yeah. It has to. I mean, how can it not? Like, if you've got the, the, the owner of the club driving everybody forward and saying, you know, we, we absolutely want to win. Here is our contribution to making that happen. We're not just going to talk. We're going to display real ambition. We, we have a desire for this football club to achieve things. You know, if that manifests itself through the owner's actions, it seeps down throughout the club. Instead, what we've got is like Stan Kroenke's watery piss trickling down over everybody, and people are just like, well, you know, okay, we didn't win. Ah, well, you know, it feels like a kind of, ah, well.
2: uh." Well, it has to work both ways. I mean, there have to be investments that sort of show intention to be successful, but also when when you're not successful, there have to be repercussions. And I think what concerns me is, you know, I can sit here and say, okay, on balance, I would give Emery another year, but when I say that, I mean it. And if we if we didn't if we didn't get what we wanted next year, I'd say, well, that's it. You know, pull the trigger. But I feel like we have an owner model where they're probably fine. They probably would just be like, oh well, yeah. car- carry on, um, unless it starts to really affect their investment. I mean, that is the only thing that I could see, uh, you know, having an influence. But they, they have a long term view. And they will assume that ultimately you know they're in a lot of real estate in London. this brand is big it's going to retain value there, there was I was
3: listening uh, the other day to uh, the Arsenal Vision podcast, and uh Elliot was asking Clive about what he thought about the the stories about new money uh coming into the likes of uh, Newcastle mm. Everton, of course, have got uh, the former Arsenal uh, shareholder. Uh, Moshiri is, is the, the owner there now, and he's got a lot of money to spend. And who knows, maybe Uzmanov might, might crop up there. Mm. And, and he made a really interesting point about how the Premier League is going to dominate financially for years to come. Mm. Because of the money that's involved in the league through TV, uh, you made a great point. Like, who's going to watch the Spanish league when Messi's not there? You know, they kind of fucked it a bit this year, didn't they? With, with taking it off Sky, nobody can watch Spanish football unless you've got whatever subscription you need now. I think ITV Five or something are showing it. Whatever it might Eleven be, Eleven Sports or someone like. that. Yeah, but they yeah. went out. Of, they went bust, didn't they? You know. Oh, did they? Yeah, and and you know. Um, you get your bits on BT sport and your bits of Serie A and Bundesliga and all that kind of stuff. But the people pushing very strongly for uh, Clive's point basically was that, you know, it's, it's, it's hastening the development of a European super league because the big clubs um, who don't really have any competition, uh, you know, domestically Juventus, you know, run away with the Italian league all the time, Bayern Munich, uh, the two big Spanish clubs, um, you know, They want to be part of a European Super League because that's where they see the money in the next few years. And I worry about that, not because of my general objection to a European Super League, which feels more and more inevitable, um, but because I I worry that we have for a long time taken our place in that European Super League for granted mm. and by the time it comes around you wonder if Arsenal are going to be the kind of club that will be involved uh, and maybe I don't want us to be involved because the European Super League is a horrible idea and it, it, it kills domestic competition but that's the kind of reality I think we're facing we're at a kind of a crossroads now where we are, unless we do something radical about the direction the club is going in, we are going to slip further and further behind the teams that we now consider rivals, the Chelsea's, Manchester United's, Manchester City's, Liverpool's, etc., even though there's only one of those clubs, and I don't know why people say stuff like that, the Chelsea's and the United's. And we are going to get dragged closer to the Evertons and maybe the Wolves and the Newcastles, etc. If they get that kind of investment, that's where I fear we're going.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, for a little bit of time, we've been able to uh, sort of claim that we're kind of a Champions League team on hiatus. But three seasons in the Europa League, I think that makes you a Europa League team, that's what we are now. That's what that we are what now, yeah. Yeah. And that's a a grim reality, but that is the reality. Um Yeah, it's it's and, and I think I don't think that we've ever looked like a Champions League team this season, really. So if we had got it, mm. I would have been grateful for it. But like I say, it would have been a bit of a Hail Mary.
3: Yeah. Right? I mean, something I wrote in the blog today is that, of course, I wanted it and I wanted us to win that trophy last night. Um, and I have to say, more for the, the, the achievement of winning a European trophy because mm. so few people within their Arsenal-supporting lifetimes have ever seen Arsenal win a European trophy, you know? How many
2: finals is that we've lost consecutively Four, now?
3: four yeah. European finals, you know, since we won the last one in 1994, which was which was amazing. But, you know, in 25 years, you know, if you are born um, after 94 or born in the early 90s, you um, you know chances are you you have no memory whatsoever of arsenal ever winning a european trophy so i wanted it really badly for that and for you know just because why wouldn't you want your team to win a european trophy but mm. uh the the champions league was kind of a secondary thing and maybe maybe the harsh reality of not getting into the champions league will Maybe I'm the one being naive here by saying it, but I feel like perhaps it might focus the people running this football club on the extent of the issues that we face as a team and as a club that you you can't keep putting sticking plasters onto things. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the old yeah. classic about how, you know, it would have papered over the cracks. You know, potentially, potentially we could have taken the extra Champions League revenue, invested well this summer, moved players on, brought good players in, and rebuilt from that platform. I'm not saying that couldn't have happened, but what I am saying now is that without it, everything is in stark relief, and there's just no escaping the reality of the situation that we're in. And we've got to do something about it. And Mm. I I don't think it's acceptable for our owner to sit on his hands and to allow the... What's the word? The diminishing of this football club as a football club. From a sporting point of view and a reputational point of view, and you can talk about the brand and all that stuff... But the, the the reputation of this football club is being diminished season after season and it's time either to do something about it and if he's not willing to do something about it or anything about it, then he should get the fuck out and let somebody else in who who will. And I know that's a completely ridiculous and simplistic way of putting it, but maybe as fans... You know, unless we see something being put in place, maybe we have to start making a bit more noise about it. You said the other week that, you know, I asked you the question, are we in the Hicks Gillette era for for mm. Arsenal? You said yes. Mm. Liverpool fans made a lot of noise. Mm. So unless we see something different, maybe that's what Arsenal fans have got to do.
2: Yeah, I saw a, a question. I'll just mention it now. It's from uh, Hubie, who's at Hubie Sounds. And he says, sorry for the serious question, but my Liverpool sporting mate sympathises with our desperation over KSC ownership. says, the only way we can make a difference is to mobilise in the same way LFC fans did against Hicks and Gillette. What are the chances of this happening with our fan base?
3: I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. who I takes mean, I, Who I, takes the lead? I mean... I don't know. I don't it know how it happens.
2: Yeah, and I I don't say this to disparage our fan base, but I feel like it's I feel like for lots of reasons there's a bit less engagement maybe than there would be in Liverpool in terms of sort of the match going fan. I think a lot of that is to do with the sort of sanitization of the stadium experience and and the and the pricing, but I I, I it doesn't f- for all the it feels like there's more um Apathy than anger. Yes, and,
3: and apathy is almost more dangerous.
2: Yeah, it than is. anger
3: because people will just walk away.
2: And I, I think that that is because a lot of what people loved about Arsenal and about going to Arsenal and the matchday experience and the, and the 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 club, you know, the ideology of the club, a lot of that has been quite steadily eroded you know Arsenal have sort of sold their soul but without any return we've sort of been playing catch up on modern football and we've sacrificed enough of our principles but not got the success that you would hope for in exchange and it leaves us in this sort of very awkward position where we're not really like a club that as a fan you can get excited about and feel like oh they care about me and I care about them there's that level of sort of investment uh, and sort of Community, but we're also not a club who, like Chelsea, for example, who don't have those things, they just win. They just win trophies. Mm. We don't do that either. So we are in a kind of no man's land for a big club. And uh, it is a really, really dangerous and treacherous position to be in. Mm.
3: Yeah. I don't know what to say to that.
2: <laughs> Genuinely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is it. I think that we are stuck between two things. I think we had an ideology and we thought it would bring us success. Football changed. We were too late to change. We've tried to play catch-up and now we're not one thing and we're not the other. And that's why we don't feel emotionally involved in it, but we don't feel satisfied by it either. Yeah. We're we're
3: just sort of not what we thought we would be.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, it's the- a tale of mismanagement really and we are in decline now and the, and it's you know I, I again I, this is why I have a sort of slight degree of sympathy with the coach where people say oh we, we're as bad as we were last season and it's like well I feel like he's fighting a tide like I feel like we are yeah. on a downward curve and keeping us in the same position is almost difficult like we are we are uh, you know yeah a negative spiral I do see, yeah, I
3: do see that. And I think that is um, some measure of mitigation for, for Emery. Um, and ultimately, whoever comes in, let's say he's replaced tomorrow, that person is going to have to deal with the same issues in terms of the overall culture of the club, uh, the, the the absentee owner, um, uh, yeah. a, a lack of professional structures behind the scenes, you know, certainly from a from a footballing point of view where we, we thought we were going to have this, um, uh, you know, CEO and a head of football, a head of recruitment and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and now we have no head of recruitment, no technical director. And as somebody uh, on Twitter, I apologize. Uh, I can't find it. But, you know, we've, we've got a two-headed gazitas, as as they put it. <laughs> or gazetas yeah. with two heads. I can't, you know...
2: Um, yeah. And if if Emery was sacked tomorrow, um, a new coach would come in, and people would say, you know, people would hopefully say, okay, we understand now. He's got to be given time. What I'm saying is, sooner or later, someone's got to be given quite a lot of time because this is a massive mess right now, in my opinion. Like I, I think it's worse than I thought it was at the start of the season in terms of. You know, this season has been a disaster. There's a brilliant thread on Twitter from Darren Arsenal where he sort of runs down the season in terms of what it you know has constituted and what has happened. And when you look at it, it's, mm. for the club, pretty dire reading.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um,
1: mm.
2: And there's this perverse thing where we might have won a final yesterday, but I think that the manner of the fact that we didn't yeah, um, is obviously playing its part in the in the in the, the the tone and the mood this morning. Yeah, for sure. Shall we
3: have a break? Yeah, let's have a break. I think I need a cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think
2: that's
3: a cup good of idea. coffee and a shot of adrenaline straight to the heart. Um, we'll we'll do that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We've got loads of questions. We'll get through as many as we can in part two. Right after this.
0: Hey y'all, it's Matt Marr here, a.k.a. Maddie. And Poodle, a.k.a. Jake Anthony, and we host the podcast 90 Day Gaze. Poodle, I'm excited because Christmas is here. Aren't you excited? Bah, humbug. What's so great about Christmas? I'm just gonna get another boring, straight-looking sweater for my Aunt Jane. Well, Poodle Scrooge, you tell your Aunt Jane to get you Best Christmas Ever on AMC+. Plus. You will love it. Oh, wow! They got all my favorites. Elf! national lampoon's christmas vacation the year without a santa claus and y'all amc plus is available on all your devices so celebrate the best christmas ever anytime anywhere sign up today at amcplus.com amc plus only the good stuff this holiday season treat yourself treat yourself to candy
3: Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions you send to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arseblog on the Arseblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arseblog. forgot to do Facebook, James. Shit. Mm. Um, and also on the Arseblog Patreon member Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arseblog member on Patreon. You can sign up for just a five or a month uh, and you get a- uh, to ask your questions in there. I'm going to go first here, though, James, if I can do that. Uh, This one comes from uh, Ali on Twitter, at Chief AFC, who says, Considering the lack of character and fight in our squad, would it be a good idea to use the next few years to promote the academy boys and develop them into players who actually care about the club and what it stands for?
2: interesting question i'm just going to sort of throw in this question as uh, something else to consider as well mm. from liam stokes who says i don't remember a whole lot of love for project youth last time around even with wenger's magic touch for the top four and i don't see that our fan base has become any more tolerant since then so what lessons should emery learn from that era mm. um it's tempting isn't it i mean I, I joked about this last night but there was a point where i thought just sell everyone except Joe Willock and Maitland Niles, <laughs> and build everything around them. And if there was a slight glimmer of pride in in what mm. happened last night, it probably was from the performances of the academy players. I know Maitland Niles has a bit of a nightmare in the second half. But Alex Iwobi, of course, up. came on Alex and made Awe a contribution. Wobi made a decent contribution. Joe Willock made a decent enough contribution. Um, it is tempting, isn't it, to think get shot of some of the experienced players and give these guys their head. I think I think the actual answer is a bit of a, a balance, you know, in terms of promoting some of these players um, in order to, if anything, save ourselves some money on the market and also, you know, bring in value. That's the thing. I mean, if these players develop well, then you've added a huge amount of chance of value to a squad that doesn't have an enormous amount at the moment. Mm. I think for fans as well, you know, we can take a, a degree of pride in that. I mean, I would I would say that I remember the points earlier in the season. I forget which game it was where Maitland-Niles and Iwobi were being booed by their own fans. Uh, so I would say people aren't, you know, entirely forgiving of academy players. And I think if we are going to go down that route, maybe there will have to be a bit of a reset on attitudes and expectations around them. Mm. Um, but it's something I could get on board with i mean it's it's what we were saying you know i know what liam's saying this question there wasn't a lot of love for project youth at the time but you've got to remember what we were coming off at that point we were coming off the invincibles uh and i think everything's relative and i think sort of compared to where we are now i think there would be more enthusiasm for something like that
3: yeah i mean it would give you something that you could invest in Now, I know there's a a touch of the rainbow road to the idea that all these guys are going to come through and, you know, be the next class of 92 and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think we all understand how unrealistic it is that somehow by promoting five or six kids from the youth academy, we are going to develop into, you know, an all conquering team again. But it might be a way in which we can give people something to believe in and uh, identify with. Right. Because, yeah. you know, these are these are Arsenal boys. And, and you know, I, I do remember that incident that you're talking about as well with, with Maitland-Niles in Iwobi where where they were being given some stick. And, you know, they're, they're Arsenal boys through and through. They grew up at the club, you know, um, and that's people talk about. That's what we're missing. People who understand, you know, what it means to be Arsenal. I mean, they do. They've been at the club since they were six or nine or something. So you know, if anybody does, they do. Um, you know, it's it's a quality thing as well. Though you know, it's all well and good saying we should promote this player or that player, but you know, if they're not good enough or if they're not potentially good enough, then there's no point in in doing that either. So it is um, it's a difficult one, but I feel like the investment in in young players doesn't necessarily have to come from the academy I mean it would be great to have you know all the players come through the academy but at the same time you can buy players who come to the club young enough who are still malleable and you know in the mm. formative sort of years of their career who would, who would become identifiable as, as Arsenal players because they've been there from a young age you know so that's another way of doing it I, I, I strongly feel that our best way of arresting the slide and bridging the gap is to is to go with a, a youth-orientated project. You know, I, I don't think it's possible to just buy 18- and 20-year-olds. I think you do have to find the right kind of balance in terms of players of experience and, and people who can guide uh, young players through... Um, Difficult points of the season and difficult points difficult points in their own careers, you know, and they might hit a stumbling block. You know, if you turn around and you've only got another 21-year-old beside you, it's difficult to know how to get through that. Whereas if you've got a 26, 27-year-old, uh, maybe a 30-year-old in the team who can say, look, it's normal that this happens in your career. You know, do this, try this, don't worry about it, don't fret about it. That mm. That's invaluable too, but... It feels like with the budget we have, with the outlook that we have, with the market the way that it is, our best hope is to go with that kind of youth orientated project where where we sign young players who can develop and mature and get better at the club and hopefully, you know, um, drive the team forward. But I also think, and this is where I worry a little bit about about Emory is that I think for that to work you kind of need those players to be able to come in and not necessarily fit into a fixed style but I think it's difficult to ask a 20, 20 year old or, or whatever it might be to be tactically flexible and be able to play in two or three or four different systems depending on the opposition mm. you're facing Right, so it feels to me like that 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 thing that we can then identify with also has to be identifiable in terms of the style of football that we play. And I think we talked about this a bit on on Monday, didn't we? Where we 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 we, we talked about Cruyff putting his blueprint on Barcelona, and there is now a sort of Barcelona way to play, which is which is there from there um, from La Masia, you know, the youth uh, system of Barcelona. They learn how to play a certain type of football, and I I I feel like I'm not. It doesn't have to be exactly that, but I feel like it would be easier to integrate and develop young players if there was an identifiable style of football at the club. Because I don't know, it simplifies things a little bit. It's not to say you can't be tactically flexible and do different things, but I feel like that's that's where we need to be and where we need to go you know to try and bridge this this growing gap
2: yeah and I think as well I think there is an argument that it's good for young players to have a coach who they can look at and see sort of a five year plan unfolding rather Mm -hmm. than a a one year plan Um, so you know from that point of view if you are going to go with the young players I think there is an argument to maybe shift the coach but uh, yeah, I, I I would love to see some of these young players promoted, and I would like to see more young players signed. I think definitely in the transfer market that needs to be reflected. Um, we need to rejuvenate this squad in a literal sense. Uh, I, I I do worry that we can't go entirely down that route because I feel like our top six place w- would be at risk. You know, I think we'd be at real real risk at that if we just went with kids you know pretty much exclusively
3: no i mean that's what i said you do have to find you do have to find the balance but when i'm yeah. talking about investing in the team yeah you know where where best can we spend the money or how best can we spend the money we could probably get more 20 year olds or 18 year olds or 21 year olds than we could 26 27 year olds players who are who are in their prime unless we can do you know what other clubs have done to us and that is take players at the end of their contracts Mm. but not everybody is as shit as us at managing player contracts so those players are you know not regularly available
2: no it's quite unusual I mean it's becoming more common but not very much so I mean on on that note we face this question all season long but I thought I'd ask you now to see if you're Viewpoints changed at all. Rob Tonkinson on Twitter says, considering the reports, we now have just £40 million pounds to spend. If a team does come in for one of Lacazette or Bamiang for big money, mm. say 60 to £70 million, are we obliged to accept if that's our only means of rebuilding the squad this summer? Um, it, makes you, it, makes you th- it makes you think. I mean, I've always been of the mind why let one go. But when you're looking at how much work needs to be done on the squad... It does make you Uh, take pause.
3: It certainly does. But also, um, this ties into a question from JB at Gunnar Punner, who says, Mm. everybody's talking about our desire to keep our top players like this is a one-sided decision. Do you think there's a danger that players such as our two strikers now ask to leave, given our absence from the Champions League, is no longer just a blip,
2: which is a Mm. reasonable um, fear to have? I guess. Yeah. I mean, if Lacazette's interest from Barcelona is genuine, he's going to want to go there, isn't it?
3: Well, yeah, you could understand absolutely why he would want to go there. Um, the question you might also ask is if you're, as a club, willing to sell a player like that, what does it say to the other top players at the club? True. You know, like if you sell, Obama, or if you sell Aubameyang, because... Realistically, this is about the only time when you can sell him and still get any money for him because he's, you know, 30 and, Mm -hmm. you know, at a point where players, you know, the value starts to decline. You know, if you do sell him, however, you rationalize that and say, look, we, we have to invest in the squad, we want to make the team better. What does Lacazette think about it? Not only is it his fucking great mate you're selling, you're also selling the, the team's leading goal scorer. So however you 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 dress it up or however you reinvest the money, it doesn't come across as a particularly ambitious way to run your football club.
1: Mm.
2: It's that's true you know? there are definitely players I would sell before them let's put it like that oh yeah I mean, a- anything we could get for Mustafi anything we could get for Kolasinac Kalasinac, you know the- all these players I would be able to sell um, I-, I had this question actually from uh, Wida Prasa Arsenal who's at WW underscore AFC saying do you think signing a left back is more important than a central defender we still have holding Socrates, Chambers and Mavropanos at centre back I asked that because you mentioned Kalasinac. I mean, for me, last night was a bit of a tipping point for Kalasinac. I I really was frustrated with his performance. At, so.
3: at halftime, Petr Cech had a better pass completion percentage than, say, Kolasinac, Wow! which is nuts, because uh, I and could see people complaining about Cech's distribution throughout the game, and I was thinking, wow, he must be terrible, and it was somewhere around 50%, whereas Kalasinac finished the first half with 47%. Now, he yeah. finished the game with... 70 70 think. something like that but you know a lot of that was sterile possession passing um at a point in the game where it didn't really matter
2: Um there d- was a point in the second half I don't know if, in the first half actually it was where Monreal uh, gave Kolasinac the ball and he sort of had his back to go he was well inside his own half Kolasinac but he had two players quite near him and he sort of hurriedly, like, knocked the ball back to Gate and sort of lost it with him. It was like, don't give me the ball in that situation. And I suddenly thought, you can't give him the ball, really, under any pressure. I mean, technically, he's just not really adept enough to retain possession. Unless he's running onto a ball in open space, he's in trouble, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. He, he looks like a centre-half, basically. He does. I mean, he's a, which apparently he began his career. At someone was saying to me that he played a lot of his early football as a centre half, and uh, you can see why because he's got the body type and he's got sort of the technical level to an extent.
3: I mean, you know, what is he kind of but a sort of Bosnian Eunice Kabul kind of player? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Um, he's either quite good or terrible. And but I think th- there's I, not a lot that- of middle ground with him.
2: So yeah. quite
3: good or terrible, and more often than not, I think he's
2: pretty terrible. And the and the degree to which he gets in behind, I think, is a function of the way we play as much as it is a strength of his own individually. Correct. Um, Correct. And I think there are players who could do more in that position and who could be more. Helpful in, you know, build-up play, I think, from deeper. I mean, to be honest, if Emery wants to be playing a back four, he needs a new left-back pretty desperately, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, it's not going to be Ben Chilwell because there are bids <laughs> of £78 million, pounds, apparently.
3: £78 million pounds from whom? Yeah. Uh,
2: according to the press last night, Atletico Madrid... Um, Didn't they sell their left back for that kind of money to buy? And I forget Mm. this, but um, yeah, crazy. But, uh, you know, that shows what we're potentially up against. So
3: coming back to the question, do we need a left back as much as we need a a central defender? Yeah. Yeah, Mm. we we do. We do. I think... um, I think Nacho, as much as, you know, he's been a fantastic uh, player and a really consistent player for for the club, has declined quite markedly o- over the course of the last 12 months. And we still don't know what his contractual situation is. I would get rid of Kolasinac tomorrow in a heartbeat, um, which definitely means we need a new left back from somewhere Um, and I think you're absolutely right in that it's not necessarily uh, you know that getting in behind and and cutting the ball back it's not the most complicated bit of football you'll ever see in your life is it run fast behind there and then kick the ball back across the goal Mm. you don't need to be um, hugely talented in order To do that, now you know he's made a contribution this season, Kalasinac in terms of assists. I think he has six or seven assists. Um, So you know, but I think you're you're right. It's a function of the system more than the 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 player himself. So it's not as if moving him on means we we deny ourselves that outlet. It just means maybe we get a better footballer to put the crosses in and somebody who can also defend Um, because you can't really play him as a left back. Um, in a back four, that's that's not where where he's strong. I mean, we de- we definitely need a central defender, but we also really need a left back too.
2: So, yeah, I think we need them almost as much as each other, to be honest.
1: Mm.
3: Uh, here is a question from Okay, I had it there a second ago, and now it's gone. Oh, this comes from M, who's at M full stop on Twitter he says uh, you know because this is a nice little break he says on a subject entirely unrelated to football or Arsenal what's the best way to dispose of an asset with no market value and an annual maintenance cost of 18 million pounds asking for a friend
2: <laughs> <laughs> um I, I, by the way, I wanted to touch on this question. I know I keep answering questions with questions, but it, just because it was a different perspective on the Urzel thing that I hadn't seen a lot of. And Luke Breeze on Twitter said, lots of chat about Urzel today, and his second-half performance was pretty dreadful. But I actually thought he did a decent job on Jorginho in the first half and was a big reason why we were on top by keeping out of the game. Am I alone in this, or am I mistaken,
3: um, I? I think you're kind of mistaken because I did maybe I'm wrong maybe he did but I looked at the heat maps mm. of Jorginho and Ozil in the first half and they're not necessarily they don't necessarily tally you know um, yeah.
2: I mean I watched it by sight and he was you know doing a bit of tracking but it wasn't quite uh, I mean he, he can't match what Ramsey offers you in that role I think, the, as we sort of said earlier with Ertel, the kind of the problem is that he was fine, that he was sort of no better or worse than anyone else, but that isn't what we're paying for. That no. just isn't what we're paying for. Mm. And I know people keep saying, it's unfair that he's judged by his contract, but that is the reality. We are spending that money on him and we're not getting a return on it. And we need that money. Since, we really need it.
3: Since when... Has any footballer not been judged by their pay packet or their transfer fee? Whether it's right or wrong, it is how it works. You know, yeah. it's not the only measure through which you, 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 uh, you make a judgment on them or you assess them, but it plays into it.
2: it has to. Yeah. It's, you're looking for return on investment. I also think as well that he's judged by a standard of football that he set previously at Real Madrid and I think in some spells at Arsenal um, how we move him on I really don't know I mean the club I think did a lot to sort of tell him show him the door essentially before the January transfer window mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't step through it he seems pretty intransigent in his position which is his right you know we gave him the contract yeah Um I have always I've sort of said all season long that I think that a divorce is needed here that Arsenal need to move on from us or even at the point where people are saying why isn't he in the team I felt that I could understand it because we we need to get that resource back to distribute more evenly through the team and in a more efficient way but I don't know how the hell they're gonna do it um have you got any ideas they're gonna pay him that's how it yeah.
3: that's the only way they can
2: do it What, a chunk of his salary, keep paying it?
3: Yeah, because he's very unlikely to attract a club who are going to pay him £350,000 a week. That's, you know, that's world star wages. Mm. And, yeah, he's he's just not going to attract the kind of attention from the clubs who can afford that kind of money. Maybe PSG because they're mental. You know, as a football club, you know they're they're not necessarily they're not
2: real. They don't exist in the real world. They I mean, exist that would be in this. Lovely, wouldn't it? PSG yeah. just came in, and said, "Oh, we'll we'll pay it," mm. and here's a transfer fee as well. Can you imagine? That would be it'd be
3: like fucking a hundred Christmases. But you know, the, the reality is, and I think the 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 way that the Ozil camp have have played this, I think they have made it very clear that. The only way that he will leave is is through money because you you put it out there. I'm really happy here. I love the club. I want to stay. I see my future here. You know, I have two more years at Arsenal. After that, who knows? You know, it's all part of the game. It's all in the game, yo. And the game is pay me my fucking money, you fuckers. Mm -hmm. And I'll be quite happy to go anywhere, which I think... He probably would be because a footballer's life as much as he likes it in London and I think he does you know genuinely like London but who wouldn't like London if you're earning fucking £350,000 a week and you can live you know the way anybody earning that kind of money um, can live but you can still live very nicely somewhere else with less money but with a nice big lump sum in your pocket because you've been paid off by your former club so I think that's what it will boil down to. If Arsenal really want to move Mesut Ozil on this summer, they can do it. And I don't think I don't think it's a, a case that he absolutely and utterly will not move, but I think it's a case he will not move unless the terms are right for him and his agent.
2: And that's the, that's the way it works. At that point you get into a thing where it's like <laughs> Is it better to have Ozil on that money? No. Or, pay, or are we paying 100 grand a week to not have Ozil? Do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, w- I would be of the mind move him on. Yeah. yeah. I, I just feel like we
3: have to move on. As a club we talked about it in the first half of the show. We've got to be ruthless. We've got to make decisions which are for the benefit of the football club, not just in the short term but in the medium to long term as well. And I don't know as a football club that we can deal with two more years of the drama and the, the, everything else that surrounds Mesdosil because now that we're at the you know the end of the season and we've we've lost the final, we haven't finished in the top 4. You know, we can acknowledge that this has been a pretty unpleasant situation at times with with Ozil. Stuff that's gone on behind the scenes hasn't been particularly great. You know, you can question his his um, commitment. You know, it's now a running joke that he doesn't play in away games when we we go north of the Watford Gap. You know, that's it's just not sustainable. It's not sustainable on a footballing level, a financial level um and from a fan's point of view, you know he's he's becoming an increasingly divisive figure at the football club, and mm. you can you can't maintain that not if you want to if you want to change things, not if you want to improve things if you want to if you want to grow something new,'m not saying ozil is is a weed, but we've got to weed the garden a bit.
2: Yeah, and and I always felt like the sort of truce between Ozil and Emery felt like a temporary measure, and I think it ended in whatever it was, the 68th minute last night. Mm. Um, I had some questions. I had one from the Discord. Let's have a look. It's quite long. Okay. Uh, It's from John Foster. John Foster says, Good morning, uh i've had my season ticket since the stadium move and i had my name on the waiting list for 10 years before that the last five years it's been harder to get to games young kids moving out of london loads of other shit but what you're going to do i'm loyal and i'm lucky to have the ticket there's also been a growing sense that we're not getting great value from our season tickets which as you know are the most expensive in the country but it's not about money is it and anyway these things take time don't they well, I've woken up this morning, considered another year of paying huge money to watch this underinvested team that doesn't seem to care, run by a man who definitely doesn't, and I just feel like an absolute mug. I mean, I'm being ripped off, aren't I? My loyalty is being exploited by people who care for nothing except the money. The investment I make of time, of finance, and emotion isn't close to being matched by the club, and it's with a heavy heart, but I don't think I'll renew this year. Am I overreacting? Am I acting like a Man U fan? Can you give me a good reason why I shouldn't get rid? Thanks.
3: We have had a number of those questions, a couple of variations. Uh, Gingers for Limpar. How do I motivate myself to press pay on the season ticket renewal? Look, I'm not in that position. You're in that position, you know, as a season ticket holder, so you could probably identify with this question a bit more. But, you know, I don't think it is an overreaction. When you can't identify with with a football club anymore, uh, and maybe some of it is due to, you know, age and getting older and having kids and all that kind of stuff, That you know, I think that's, that's kind of natural. How do you, you know, how do you justify the investment of money, and it is big money, um, to to renew your, your season ticket. Um, I can't tell him whether or not he's overreacting and I can't tell Gingers Empire why he should press pay on a season ticket renewal. I guess the reason is, is that you, or certainly as a football fan, you kind of have this built-in hope that it will get better, that next season will be better. Um Maybe, you know, that's something you take with you from the time you first start supporting a football club, right? As a kid, Mm. start of a new season. It's a new chapter. It's a fresh page. Anything could happen. We could do it this year. Why can't we do it? We're Arsenal. We can do it. Um, As you get older and as we get a bit more informed about the way that the football club is being run, that then influences your decision-making, doesn't it? Because if the guy that owns your football club um, doesn't care about your football club, then you wonder, are they really going to do what it takes to to make the club competitive again? And this isn't just about saying, um, I'm only interested in Arsenal when they win. I'm only in it for the trophies, but I think what we're in it for is to, to see a team that at least tries to be competitive or a club that tries to, to achieve things rather than talking about how it wants to achieve things and talking about how it wants success and to win the Champions League and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the way you justify it is, is through the club's actions, I guess. See what they do this summer, and if that tickles your fancy. I mean, I know the the renewal date is is what ten days away.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. the so you've got to pull this. Yeah, you've got to, have already gone out. So yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. You have got to pull the trigger before you can see what they do this summer. So it's a leap of faith in a way. So I, you know,
2: but I, that faith, I, I think, is 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 exploited. I, I would say. Oh yeah, know. of
3: course. But it's you know, and that's not just at Arsenal. I no. think we should make that point that, you know, and it's not just football clubs that do it either. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, broadcasters and, and all those sure. kind of things. You know, football fans are a captive audience. They're a really niche audience as well, because it's not as if you can translate your your um, your support to another club. You just can't do that. That's not how it works. So they know that they've got you. They know that they've got you. Um. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where there was the talk of, of apathy. And that's where people are with their season ticket renewals. Mm.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's bigger than just, you know, having kids now and having other priorities in life. But I've seen a lot of people saying, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm older or I don't know if it's because I've got a family now, but I feel less invested. I don't think it is that, you know. I, when... I feel like when you used to go to Highbury, it wasn't like people got to 35 and then they just stopped going. I feel like there was (laughs) more continuity, you know, and there were more people who were a little bit older and had that sort of culture of having gone for decades on the stands. And and partly that's because of the, the prices, I suspect. But I think as well, there is just a bit of a disconnect with the club for reasons we talked about in part one where... You know that attachment that loyalty isn't there, and I think when you when you're being asked to spend you know sometimes well over a grand on a season ticket, you are thinking about who you're giving that money to, whose pocket are you putting it in, and for why mm. and I can you know we're sat here talking about the money some of these players make or the money the club aren't spending, and the money owners have taken out of the club in the past, and you know it's not a particularly enthusing prospect is it to to be doing that to be clicking that button and and paying that money out yeah I, I mean yeah I have a lot of sympathy with that position and I speak as someone who makes some money off of talking about Arsenal and writing about Arsenal so at least I experience some return on it for everybody else the return is in the experience the return is in you know I'm there and I'm, I'm part of something but It is quite shocking, isn't it? Because I feel like a year ago, there was probably quite a swift take-up in season tickets. I think when the manager announced he was going, I think people would have been really energised by the change and felt really optimistic about what the next 12 months might bring. Here we are 12 months on, and that optimism has evaporated so swiftly, so swiftly. And I think that has to speak to bigger underlying Problems. Yeah, at the it's club.
3: it's not just Emery. However, whatever you think of Emery, whether you think he's the right man, the wrong man, you know, it, it's not it's not just down to him. Clearly, what happens on the pitch is his remit, and he hasn't mm-hmm. done what we all hoped he would do. And I guess he hasn't done what he was tasked with doing. Um, and he's he's you know, the way it's played out in particular has been, I think, quite damaging to him. But you can't. You can't just look at him as the as the only reason why that enthusiasm and the excitement over change has has evaporated because it comes, as we've said before, from from the very top down.
2: And also the other thing I'd say on the season tickets, you know, we're talking about um, that apathy and, and what might prompt change. I mean, ultimately, you know, the finances is is, is what will make. Cronky make decisions um Mm. so maybe there is potentially an argument to say well i mean anyone who doesn't want to renew i'm not going to convince you to renew i think you're within your rights to not i've got complete sympathy with someone saying i don't want to keep paying a thousand pounds a year or more to watch this team especially when there's not there's enough demand that you don't actually need a season ticket to go to quite a lot of games you know there's enough availability there now that you can get into most games pretty easily without shelling out that money i mean i'm i'm not trying to rob the club of money that they need but i, I do identify with that sense of uh sort of feeling a bit dis- detached from it
3: sure sure and look this is this is again where we come back to the idea of not just investment because you know signings are fun everybody loves a signing and if you get a good signing I mean we talk about you know signings putting bums on seats but that's the reality you know it can do because people are interested and excited because you bought a player who's good or you know who might transform the team in a way you know it comes back to having something to identify with Um, you know it's, it's I think quite hard to identify with what Arsenal as a football team want to be and what Arsenal as a football club want to be you know we hear the buzzwords and we hear the phrases and we hear the talking and we hear the you know the corporate speak and the gobbledygook but realistically none of us buy it do we? Do we be- do we really believe it? No, like I think if people, re- if people really believed that when Raoul and Vinay talk about how we want to achieve there wouldn't be the apathy we would be frustrated at the way the season went. Of course, we would. But underlying that would be a kind of a belief in in the in the overall project, or that the club itself was an ambitious thing. And I, I you know, this isn't to critis- criticize. Um, American owners or foreign owners or anything like that but there is something fundamentally missing when your club is owned by an investment group when it's a when it's a franchise of something else and it's not actually owned by fans or run by fans you know there's something missing there has to be something missing hmm. you know whatever else about the previous board and how they got us to where we were they did also oversee the most exciting and interesting period in the club's recent history you know they were fans who wanted the club to succeed Um, and we have the doubles and the invincibles and you know the early years of uh, the first part of the the Wenger reign and it was fans who put in place a project to try and take the club to the next level by moving stadium by moving you know from Highbury to the Emirates right
1: hmm.
3: you know the the, the uh, dean and uh, hillwood and Fisman, uh, et cetera, etc etc you know were were arsenal fans and so their driver was to make the club successful and what's happened since that stadium move is people have come into the club with no concept of what it cost or how much it took to get there or what the driver or the motivation was to make that move in the first place. And I include Ivan Gazidis in this as the chief executive who came in 2009. You know, he came into first class, business class, Arsenal but did not have any conception of, of what it was before and what it took to get there. And, and him and Cronky have had this assumption that this is what it was always like and this is what it always would be like and have run the club in a way, you know, based on that assumption, right? Mm. And
2: here we are. Here we are. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's very... It's very. Uh, it's a very uninspiring thing because essentially, you know, the club was run by fans and is now run almost entirely as a corporate entity. It used to bridge those two things quite neatly, but I think that bridge has mm. collapsed somewhat.
3: Yeah, and look, you know, again, it, it doesn't mean that because... Um, it, you're not run by fans, it doesn't mean you can't be ambitious. You know, none of the people, I know we're just throwing out weird examples here, um, but you know, the the people at Manchester City, they're not Manchester City fans, but they are ambitious. Um, And that's not to say, you know, we need our own um, Sheikh Mansour or whatever it might be, but, you know, it's not to say that, you know, if, if Stan Kroenke could be from wherever in the world, but if he was ambitious and really wanted Arsenal to, to achieve things, then, you know, we could all buy into that. But what we've seen is a guy who owns the club, who's, who's um, invested not one single penny into the club itself. He's bought the shares, but put nothing into the club and has actually taken money out on a number of occasions. Um, You know, we can't, we can't. How can you have any belief that when he uh, or KSE or his mouthpieces say, you know, we're really ambitious, how can you believe that? You can't. Hmm. You just can't believe it because, you know, there's nothing to believe in. There's no substance, as I said before. Um, yeah. uh, do, do you want to add anything to that? I've got a question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm, uh, not really. No, I think that's, uh, I think you said. Put it rather well no, I don't really yeah. have much to add to that one
3: looking ahead um, I've got a couple of questions about next season
2: <laughs> oh
3: great great uh, at Joe Ruddock says what would your Europa League starting lineups look like for next season surely it's time for Sacco Willick Smithrow etc to get a chance rather than a team of Elnenis and just sort of widening that out what would your approach be to the Europa League next season
2: uh <laughs> the funny thing about the Europa League is it's a competition we don't really want to be in but obviously it still has the prize at the end of it of Champions League football so we can't afford to throw it Uh, but I do think we can afford to maybe rotate a bit more in the group stages than we did uh, and put a bit more emphasis on the, the Premier League in that period and yeah hopefully give some game time to some young players but I think you know once it gets into the knockouts I think we have to sort of take it seriously we have to try because it it, it, I know it's a cup competition but in some ways I still find us winning it uh, maybe as likely if not more likely than us finishing in the, the top four mm. what about you? Uh,
3: I broadly agree with what you said mm. but there's also a part of me that just says fuck it Fuck the Europa League. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it right
2: in its stupid fucking arse. Yeah. Um, and sir- by the way, something we've not talked about, and I, it's probably because I don't want it to sound like sour grapes, but absolutely fuck that final. like Yeah. It, do you know what I mean? Yeah,
3: fuck it all. You know, from the, did you see the, the, the shot of, you know, the stands just before the game kicked off and they pan across the stands in the Arsenal end and it's just, rows and rows and rows of empty seats and Mm. you know the 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 fans that went out there like fair fucks fair fucks to them for going that far and for making those trips and uh, you know not just from the UK there were fans from from all over who made the trip to Azerbaijan because you know for some of them it was closer to Azerbaijan than it was you know to London and this was their chance to go and see to see Arsenal play I think every Arsenal fan and you know, by extension, the Chelsea fans as well who went out there deserve real credit for making that, that kind of a commitment. But generally speaking, yes, fuck that final because the location was terrible. The political situation was terrible. The transport situation, terrible. Logistical situation, terrible. The, the um, hospitality situation in Baku itself, Terrible for fans who booked hotels and then found they had their bookings canceled because they were being price gouged or you know they turned up for accommodation there was one guy who said uh, uh, I think I retweeted his tweet um, he said we got this picture of of our uh, our bathroom this was on the website and it's you know it's an all right looking kind of a bathroom there's a shower unit in the corner and there's a sink or whatever and then when he arrived there's just sort of a tiled area and it looks like the sort of thing you would use to hose off you know um, victims of radioactive poisoning in a fucking nuclear power plant. This is sort of a tap and a kind of old shower head you know or a hose whatever it is is absolutely terrible. It's really a disaster and it's not sour grapes uh, you know to to talk about those things being fucking woeful and UEFA can go fuck themselves. Um, and that's mm. partly why I kind of think, you know, the, Euro- the Europa League can also go and fuck itself. Um, yeah.
2: yeah no. And the final revenge, the twist for everyone watching at home, the camera angle. No one saw that coming.
3: It was fucking worse than Burnley. <laughs> it was worse than, yeah. Baku, uh, no, worse than Burnley. There is your a, a new city motto.
2: Yeah, it was a it was a solar stadium. Really had that horrible athletics track. Huge separation between the fans and the pitch. Yeah. Um, not much atmosphere in the game. <laughs> no,
3: but here's what I do in the Europa League next season. And this, of course, is bearing in mind that you know we 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 reached a semi final and lost. We reached a final and lost. And third time lucky, you know we could get there and win. But I would be very much inclined to play young players throughout the group stages. Mm. And then I would base my approach to that uh, knockout phase of the competition on where we were in the Premier League. Like if we were competitive in the Premier League and looking like we could finish in the top four, I think I'd kind of stick with the young players. Yeah. Because I, mean, ultimately, I, I feel like progress in the Premier League would be more beneficial for us Maybe even than winning a trophy, depending, of course, on on how we're how we're rebuilding. If that fits the project of rebuilding better than you know, going all in on a on a a European trophy, but finishing fifth or sixth, I think I'd rather at this point see a team that's making genuine progress.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think I'd be inclined to agree. It's, it's difficult, one, difficult to muster yeah. much enthusiasm for the Europa League right now. Mm-hmm. Um, But by the time it rolls around, who knows? Maybe I'll be excited to play batte. (laughs) Uh,
3: Okay, here's a question from Matt, who's at ML underscore AFC. And he wants to know, can you list three things you're excited about for next
2: season? I was worried you were going to ask a question like this. (laughs) Uh, Three things that I'm excited about. It's not easy, is it? Um, I'm excited about getting Reese Nelson back potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, you know, I know he's not had an incredible time on loan at Hoffenheim, but I think he's shown he can do something, and I think, you know, from what we've seen of him at Arsenal, we know he's a big prospect. So that I think is quite exciting. Uh, I'm excited about. Help me out, Andrew. Have you got any? I'm not
3: necessarily excited about something for next season, but I'm sort of excited, maybe excited is the wrong word, about what the fuck we do this summer. Yeah, I am very curious. Yeah, I'm curious. It's kind of like almost rubbernecking at a traffic accident in a way. It's like, what are they going to do with this? Mm. How are they, how are they going?
2: Not as much as we think is usually the answer. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'm kind of excited about Edu. I, I mean, it's really unfair on the bloke because you know he's walking in and I've put all these expectations on him. But I'm I'm hopeful that he can be a kind of figurehead for the club that we've lacked for some time. Mm. Uh, and I am excited about potentially you know using south america as a bit of a resource in the transfer market i feel like that is something that's not been massively explored in the premier league and edu has the contacts and the knowledge to potentially do that so that i think is interesting mm. um beyond that i am i am struggling a bit to be honest with you
3: yeah i mean i suppose I, i'm excited about potentially some of the young players making a breakthrough that's kind of that's kind of it, though, really, isn't it? I mean, I'm not excited about playing in the Europa League. Um, no. I would have probably been a bit more excited about playing in, in the Champions League. Uh, but, yeah, that's... Yeah.
1: It's difficult to it's, get it's, so it's, up for the Europa League.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it, All of it is so contingent on what happens in the summer and what happens this summer. You know, right now having lost a final in such miserable fashion and having thrown away the top four the way that we did, it's very difficult to muster up any kind of enthusiasm. But, you know, maybe six weeks down the line or, you know, mid-July when we're parading uh, some exciting new signings across the United States in our preseason tour there and, you know, the Emirates Cup and we get to see some of these young guys and maybe, you know, things will be different then. So... Maybe I think I think (laughs) I think you know genuinely I think there there is a need for a bit of time before we can consider what might be exciting
2: again I think so yeah I mean it's the day after a final isn't it which we've lost heavily. Mm. so yeah I think uh, maybe our perspectives will shift it's probably worth putting that sort of caveat on on today but Mm. right now it's, Mm. it's not easy
3: Final one, I think. Rick Stomatic on Discord says it was my birthday yesterday. I turned 36 and will now be 36 until I turn 37. Would you like to focus on that and forget about the football? So,
2: well, happy birthday, Rick Stomatic. I'm just, I'm sorry it couldn't have been a happier one. Belated happy birthday. Belated yeah. happy birthday. Belated. Yeah. All right. Shame they didn't deliver the big present, but there mm. you go.
3: Okay. Well, look, James, we've got a few days off to uh, lick our wounds before we come back on Monday and. Well, are we coming back Monday? Going.
2: Depending on what happens on Saturday, I guess. So, uh, oh,
3: you. Uh, I forgot all about it. I had this brief moment where I was so wrapped up in I my arsenal well. misery. Yeah, I know. But I forgot the potential of even greater misery. I can't. Now Count- stop talking. Stop. Talking, Can't stop that talking, possibility. That's not. That's not it. Je suis un
2: mug smasher. I am a mug smasher all oh, the way through and through. I'm very excited about that from a as, as a Liverpool fan. There's yes, a lot to be certainly. About,
3: right? Yeah, as a Liverpool fan, I'm very excited. Um, right. Well, <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed that the weekend goes better. The uh, European football in uh, uh, the weekend goes better than the European football in midweek. Beyond that, as I said in the blog today, it's time to rip it up and start again. Catch you on the next one.
2: Bye-bye.